Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good to see you, my friends. I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 2. And today we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 15. And these last couple of weeks, we've been looking at some of the, the characters in the Christmas story, some of the received wisdom that we've had over the years, and some of it, as it turns out, wasn't exactly accurate. And I wanted to talk about some characters in Luke chapter 2 that are heard of by you, but maybe there's some things that we have misunderstood. So Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, and kind of hold, hold your thumb there for just a second, because one quick announcement. So next week is... Christmas Eve. Is that hard to believe for everybody? It's already here. And so if you haven't bought your presents, it's too late. It's too late. The good people at Amazon called me and they said, it's just too much anymore. So, uh, so you, you're on notice. If you haven't already gotten it done, then uh, the, 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 well, the clock's ticking. But for here, we're actually gonna do something a little bit different next week. We're not gonna have, uh, now we've had this out there, but uh, just as a reminder, we're gonna be doing services at four o'clock and six o'clock next week, not Sunday morning. We're gonna do our traditional Christmas Eve services. And so you and your family and friends, you kind of pick which one you wanna go to, either four o'clock or six o'clock. There's really no better way, I think, to do Christmas than to worship Jesus on Christmas Eve. What do you think? And so that's what we're gonna do. And so consider yourself invited. And I also just wanna throw a little challenge out and then we'll get into the word. Uh, maybe you think of a, a friend of yours or a colleague of yours or somebody that lives on your street, uh, somebody that doesn't have a church. Can I just encourage you to invite them? Invite them and come and worship Jesus and even invite them to sit with you. And even when it's over, you'll buy them pancakes or something. Just invite them. Does that sound good? Because we wanna make much of Jesus this Christmas season. And so next week at either four or six, I was talking with Tiffany about it and she was so pumped up because we don't have to wake up super early that Sunday morning. And she's decided that maybe we should just do it this way forever going forward. And I said, well, you know, let me pray about it. And I, yeah, God said no. And so we're gonna go back. The, the week after, we'll go back to the normal stuff, but we'd love to see you on Christmas Eve. It's gonna be a special time. And I hope you have really just a blessed and meaningful Christmas with your, your family. It's one of the most famous Christmas carols, a herald proclaiming the coming of Christmas. But how old is this song that we grew up with and where did it come from? The song that we know as the first Noel. Its origins are actually pretty humble, not unlike the story that it tells. Well, it originated in Cornwall, a county in Southwest England. The first Noel came during what is called the Proto-Renaissance. This is the period that just so you know, leads up to the Renaissance. It was in the 13th and 14th century. They used to do these things called miracle plays. I don't know how many of you have ever heard of those, but they did them. These were some of the earliest forms of theater. And it came, the song actually came about at this time. The, the plays that they would perform then, uh, they would portray famous Bible stories and the stories of Jesus' birth had become some of the most popular among all the miracle plays that they would perform. Here's became the question, perhaps the carol was written for a miracle play 
or it was inspired by a miracle play. We're actually not sure even to this day. Either way, the song kind of took on a life of its own. The citizens of Cornwall would sing the carols in the, the place where it originated. The, the citizens of Cornwall would sing the carols and they would walk out into the, the streets. So it wasn't just something that the church sang as they were in the church. It's that the people of the church were singing the first Noel as they were just walking out among the streets, as they said, because they wanted people to hear the message of healing and the message of hope. The first Noel survived and spread across the earth, literally the earth, for centuries before being first transcribed in 1823. Did you know that? Aren't you glad you came today? You're learning something about music. There's always a story behind the song. It was published within a collection of carols simply called Some Ancient Christmas Carols. You know, it's like when you're putting a book together and you go, I don't know, what shall I call it? The answer is, how about old songs? Okay, we'll call it that. And that's what they did. The London pub, uh, publication sparked new life in this carol. And there were two men, Davies Gilbert and William Sandys. Hey, are y'all writing this down yet? Because there is a quiz next week. I didn't do all this research for nothing. But anyway, there were these two guys, they wanted to breathe new life into an ancient song. And so Sandy's constructed a new arrangement for the carol. It's actually the one that we sing today. While Gilbert added some new lyrics. And that's what came out in 1823, a song that had been around for some time. They are credited for bringing the song into the modern time, the one to us, so that we, just like they wanted the people back then to hear a song of joy and a song of hope and a song about Jesus. So the first Noel was written as a way to express the excitement and the wonder of Christmas. Hundreds of years ago, during a time without internet or phones, hard to remember days like that, isn't it? But they didn't have those things. The people of Cornwall would sing in the streets. Now the world may look a little bit different today, and it definitely does, but we still gather together to sing for the same reason, don't we? We still do, all these hundreds of years later. The song is a testament to the fact that no matter what in the world is going on, no matter how much time passes, the encouragement of the story of Jesus will always connect to the hearts of people who are desperate for him. He will connect with you, and he wants to this Christmas. So the song, The First Noel, I'm going to connect it to some people in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, but you might know the line from the song, The First Noel, the angel did say, was to certain poor in fields as they lay. The shepherds. We actually see them mentioned in Luke chapter two. Let me read it for you. It says, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into, the hev into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. A very famous passage of scripture. And I don't know about you, but when I read scripture, I'm always asking questions about it. Who are they? What was going on? What can we know about these people? 
Well, there's kind of a received wisdom about the shepherds. And today, I actually want you to rethink these people a little bit. Uh, at the end of it, did you catch it? It said, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. Well, they're out in what are, what are in the fields outside of Bethlehem. That's where they're at. You need to be thinking about five to six miles outside of Bethlehem. I've been there before. And the interesting thing was, is, is it saying they kind of, they want to run in and see the Christ child. I was like, well, who's back there hanging with the sheep? I mean, if all the shepherds up and off, well, who's taking care of the flock? Have you ever wondered that when you read Luke chapter two, or am I just that guy? I had to wonder about it. I mean, the care of the sheep, that was their job. But as some have pointed out, there are a number of things that we just get flat wrong about the Christmas story. And maybe we've actually misunderstood these characters known as the shepherds. Kenneth Bailey wrote a book and I recommend it to you. It's called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. And here's what he said. He said, most people realize that there are a number of problems with the traditional interpretation of the Christmas story. For example, Mary and Joseph were almost certainly not condemned to sleep in a cattle shed by a heartless innkeeper. Joseph's family, they were from Bethlehem. He had relatives there who would have found a place for them. They would have put them up. However, because there was no space in the guest room, wrongly translated as inn in many English translations, Mary and Joseph had to sleep in the downstairs space that some of the family shared with the animals. Kind of interesting, right? But... A lot of times, especially with homes in the ancient Near East, they had these conjoining rooms, and especially if there were two levels. And because of the weather and those kinds of things, they would bring the animals in. It was a place of shelter. I was thinking about, that's not that weird. I actually have an animal that dwells inside my house right now, known as Duke, also known as the Dark Lord. We don't kick that guy out. I mean, he crashes in the crib every single day. He's a little bit spoiled rotten, you know? We have animals in our home. Well, back then, you know what? That's just kind of the way they rolled. Nobody really thought anything about it. Here's what it is. It's a strange setting to us. Maybe it just wasn't to them. It kind of got me thinking. It would be like Mary and Joseph show up into town. They're like, well, the rest of the family came in. They're already kind of in the space. But hey, we still got the other space and you guys can go there. It's almost like when your family gets together, you have the adult table that the adults eat at. And then you have the kids table that even if you're 20 years old, because you were stationed at the kids table, you're still there. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Mary and Joseph got to go to the kids table. That's basically what this was looking like, but they had a place. But you have these people, the shepherds, and you go, well, who are these cats? Well, they usually get a bad rap, don't they? I mean, even in the first Noel, the angel did say was to certain what? Poor shepherds, Uh, poor shepherds. I mean, those guys, they just don't, nothing's going right for these people. Let's rethink that for just a second today. They usually get a bad rap. So it got me wondering, Well, where'd they get the bad rap from? I mean, have you ever had somebody like um, maybe start a rumor about you and then you find out that what they were saying was just completely and categorically false, but after a while it had sort of become the received wisdom because it had been passed around so much? I wonder if it's like that with the shepherds. Here's why. The conclusion that the shepherds were social outcasts. Now, there are some scholars that will actually say that, and they've repeated this, and actually for some time, let me give you an example. Uh, So Farrar, who was writing in 1893, he wasn't writing last week. In 1893, he said this, he said, shepherds at this time were a despised class, meaning at the time of Christ. Uh, Strack and Billerbeck, is that not like the best last name, Billerbeck? Strack and Billerbeck said the shepherds were despised people. 
Robert Stein in 1992. In general, the shepherds were dishonest and unclean according to the standards of the law. They represent the outcasts and the sinners for whom Jesus came. Hey, are y'all starting to get a theme here among the, the readings that are out there? Let me give you one more. Butler in 2000, or two more actually, he said shepherds had changed from a family business as in David's time to a despised occupation. Or even in 2004, a New Testament scholar, last name Utley said, the rabbis considered them, meaning the shepherds, to be religious outcasts and their testimony wasn't even admissible in court. I mean, how bad are you when just because people identify you, they go, hey, they might have something to say about this case. And they go, not them, not them. That's kind of the received wisdom about these guys is that they just don't have any social standing. They don't have any social clout. But where did we get that from? I mean, it's the received wisdom, but is it right? And I know you wanna know. So I'm gonna tell you this morning, are you ready? And for those of you that are note takers, here we go. Here's the first place that we get this from. It's a guy named Aristotle. How many of you ever heard of him? Now I have a PhD in philosophy. I had to read this guy a little bit. And he has a lot of things to say that were very insightful. This just wasn't one of his best moments. Uh, when you look at Harris, Aristotle, he was cited as saying among people, and I just quote him here, the laziest are shepherds who lead an idle life and they get their subsistence without trouble from tame animals. Their flocks wandering from place to place in search of pasture. They are compelled to follow them, cultivating a sort of living farm. Now, as I read that quote from Aristotle, you kind of go, I don't think he likes the shepherds very much. And if you heard that, you would be exactly right. He didn't. He also didn't understand shepherding very well either because the idea that the sheep were just kind of flying around and the shepherds were just kind of have to constantly doing this to, to corral them, that is not the way it worked. They led the sheep. He got that wrong. But nevertheless, that was one of our main sources talking about shepherds. Here's the problem with this though, and especially when you're comparing this to Luke chapter two, Aristotle wasn't a Jew. He didn't live in Israel and he was writing 300 years before Christ. So he wasn't from there. He didn't know the cultural practices and it's 300 years beforehand. He was getting this wrong. When you think about your sources, you want those to be as near to the time as they can possibly be. Aristotle, that's a swing and a miss. Living 300 years before Christ, maybe we should take our cues from a different guy because he lived in a different culture, lived in a different society. He lived in a different time period. So where else did we get this from? I'm glad you asked. There are two other places. One is called the Mishnah. And the other is called the Babylonian Talmud. I've actually put an example of that up there for you. So the Mishnah is basically a collection of rabbinic sayings. That's what it is. Rabbis would debate the Old Testament and they would debate the law and they would codify it down. It's basically a collection of their interpretation of things. And you go, okay, well, that's fine. And it is fine. And sometimes it's helpful. Here's the catch. Um, when was it written? And the answer is it was written around AD 200 to about 250. Well, when was Jesus? Well, not then. You're talking at least 200 years after the fact, maybe 250 years after the fact. So maybe there's, maybe there are better sources out there, at least with regard to the shepherds. And then you have the Babylonian Talmud. That's kind of the other place that we'd get this from, that they were lowly and despised and all that. Well, I know you're wondering when that came around. And the answer is, about 500 years after the fact. So you have Aristotle a few hundred years before, and then you have these two other source traditions that are at least 200 years 
later. Here's what one scholar said. He said, I was unable to find even one source from the first century Israel used to support the view that shepherds were societal outcasts. Not one. Therefore, this viewpoint, he said, is dated after the events being studied in Luke chapter two. It's unreliable information and it should be discarded when interpreting the gospels. Well, there you go. Now you get to see the shepherds in a whole new light. The people back then, maybe they weren't hating on them. And maybe there are other reasons to think they didn't, like the Bible. Have you ever looked in the Old Testament, for example? Think about it. Abraham, in Genesis chapter 13, Abraham was a shepherd. It describes him as having much livestock, herds, and flocks of sheep. Or or even Moses, in Exodus chapter one, it says Moses was a shepherd. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. He had the staff, he was working to sheep. Or even David. Think about David, pretty well-known figure. But in 1 Samuel 17, it describes him as taking care of his father's flock. Now, those are three men that are considered to be pillars of the story of the Bible. And there's a common theme between those three and more if you actually look. And the answer is they were all shepherds, but they were all men that were greatly esteemed by the people in that day and in that time. If you take another look, there's somebody else that's also called a shepherd in the Old Testament, God himself. In one of the most famous passages in all the Bible, you have in Psalm 23, one, the Lord is my what? He is my shepherd. Being a shepherd was not a bad thing in scripture. So maybe we need to rethink these guys just a little bit. Now, one of the things that was true of them is true of some of the other characters that you've seen in Luke chapter two and some of the other stories that are surrounding the birth of Christ is that you had angels that were appearing to them. There were messages that were being spoken to the Magi far in the east and the star when they saw it, they were coming. God was revealing something and doing something new. And so he was communicating to them what he wanted everybody else to know. Christ is born. Notice that this message came to the religiously informed, it came to the rich, it came to the poor. This message came to everybody. And then you fast forward a couple of thousand years later, that message even came to me and I'm thankful for it. It says of the shepherds in Luke chapter two, they were living in a field nearby. And here's what that means. Those fields, you go about five to six miles outside of Jerusalem and you can still go to those fields today. It's actually kind of interesting because when you look, you'll see these mountain ranges up there and you'll see what looks almost like spirals kind of wrapping around the mountain range. And I remember talking with some folks as we were over there. I was like, hey, what's that? I can't quite make it out. And the answer was this, the shepherds have guided the sheep up and down those mountains for thousands of years. And so what you see from what looks like a spiral at a distance is the same path that those sheep have been taking literally for a couple of thousand years with the shepherds guiding them up and down the mountain and to the place where they could find food and where they could find water. At this time, it's probably what's called the fallow season, which means they're not out there trying to farm the land. It's just laying fallow at that time. And notice what it describes them. It says that they were there even at night. 
in the rainy wintertime. The temperatures in Bethlehem, they could be in the 50s, even down to the 30s. And it's your job, both in the rain and in the cold, to take care of these sheep. And if you go just up from the field, here's what you'll find. You can go through caves that are there. I've been there, literally climbing through the caves. And this is the place where the shepherds would take the sheep and go so that they could find a place that would protect them. Rabbinic sources indicate that... Um, that the fields out there, some even call to them what is called Migdal Eder, which means the watchtower of the flock. There's a tradition connected to the shepherds that basically the sheep that they were tending to were the ones that eventually would be brought into Jerusalem to the temple for the time of sacrifice. This was a, a sacred trust that was given to them. These weren't your run of the mill sheep is basically what I'm saying. And notice the angel of the Lord appears to them, the ones that, if the tradition is correct, that would take these sheep into Jerusalem for the sacrifice, you have the angel that appears to the shepherd that says, your savior has been born. All of this is going on in Luke chapter two. So what did their day look like? I'm glad you asked. Here's what it looked like. Uh, in the early morning, uh, the shepherd, they would lead forth the flock from the fold, marching at its head to the spot where they were to be pastured. Here he would watch them all day, taking care that none of the sheep strayed. And if any for a time eluded his watch and wandered away from the rest, seeking diligently till he found to bring it back. In those, those lands, sheep required to be supplied regularly with water. And the shepherd for this purpose has to guide them either to some running stream or to wells dug in the wilderness and, and furnished troughs. At night, they would bring the flock home to the fold. They would literally count the sheep as they passed by so that they would make sure that there were none of them that were missing. And nor did his labors end at sunset. Often he had to guard the fold through the dark hours of the night because of animals that might attack them or people that just wanted to steal them. It sounds like a never ending job, what do you think? But it was theirs. Uh, to be clear, there's a, this is a humble job. This is a humble job, but it's an important job. And they went to see a savior that was born in a very simple and humble way. I was having a conversation with a, a good friend of mine, um, an agnostic, just over this last week. And we were talking about the birth of Jesus. And he goes, you know, if I were God, <laughs> which I'm always suspicious when people start like that. And he knows that, you know, if I were God, I would have done it differently. I said, really? He goes, yeah. I mean, you know, you're kind of, you're being born out in the middle of the sticks, right? I mean, I would just probably have announced myself in a little bit of a different way. And kind of this image that he has is, you know, that Jesus would have come like this. You know, the sky just goes, you know, and it tears us and he comes down. It's like, Whoa, and you can't deny kind of what you're seeing. And that just wasn't the way that Jesus showed up. One of the things that I told him was, hey man, I, I hear you, but here's what I found out. When it comes to making judgments and I say something like this, if I were God, that's usually where I stop nowadays because I'm not, <laughs> I'm just not. But to be fair, Jesus didn't arrive like that, did he? Now there was a star in the sky. There were angels proclaiming it. But I like the way that Philip Yancey says it. In his book, he wrote a book called The Jesus I Never Knew. And he contrasts in it the humility that characterized Jesus's birth to a visit from the Queen of England. Here, here was what he said. Yancey was attempting a performance of Handel's Messiah in London. 
And during the performance, he looked toward the audience's royal box where the queen and her family sat. And here, here was what he said. He said, I caught glimpses of the way rulers stride through the world with bodyguards and, a tr and trumpet fanfare and a flourish of bright clothes and flashing jewelry. Queen Elizabeth II had recently visited the United States and reporters delighted in spelling out the logistics that were involved for this. Here's a little bit of what it took. Her 4,000 pounds of luggage. What in the world is in that? 4,000 pounds of luggage included two outfits for every occasion, a mourning outfit in case someone died, 40 pints of blood plasma, what? And white kid leather toilet seat covers. I mean, I've got those, so you know. <laughs> she, she brought along her own hairdresser, two valets, and a host of other attendants around her. A brief visit of, the, of royalty to a foreign country can easily cost, here you go, $20 million. $20 million. Bucks, And so the next time you see any royalty traveling, I want you to remember that number and judge them. <laughs> I'm kidding. All right, here you go. But here's what he went on to say. Yancey, he said, in meek contrast, God's visit to earth took place in an animal shelter with no attendant present, nowhere to lay the newborn king but a manger. Indeed, the event that divided history, even, even our calendars into two parts, may have had more animal than human witnesses. A mule could have stepped on him. And here's what he goes on to say. The, the sign of his birth foretold the story of his life and death. The humble shepherds are given a sign of a humble savior. At his birth, he was bound in a stable with swaddling clothes. At his death, he was bound by nails to a cross. And in the tomb, he was bound with grave clothes. At his birth, he lay helpless in someone else's manger. And at his death, he lay in someone else's tomb. He was born with animals and he died with robbers. He was born in a manger and he died on a cross. That's Jesus. And he came to these shepherds and he came to us, didn't he? He came to us. So I was thinking about these shepherds. Um, I was on a mission trip a couple of years ago with a group of people from this church and some friends. We were in Central Asia and we were climbing some mountains so that as we got to the top, which was about 10,000 feet up, as we got to the top, we were able to actually meet with shepherds. I don't know if you know this, but they are still out there today. And so we get to the top of the mountain and there we were, we were trying to visit and we just wanted to share the good news of Jesus with them. And these were people that had never heard the gospel before. So there's some challenges that go with that. It's not like a lot of people where there's just kind of a, a, an assumed body of knowledge that they already have about Jesus. It's you're literally having to tell them about Jesus for the first time. It really makes you think before you go. Because you go, well, what, like, what could we do that would make the story of Jesus kind of click for them so that they can understand why he's so beautiful and gracious and kind? and why they need him, just like I do. And so as we were thinking about it, one of the things that we came up with is, well, there's a little bit of a parable in Luke chapter 15, and it's the parable of a lost sheep. These are shepherds, maybe it'll click. You might know it, but let me read it for you. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and you lose one of them. 
Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country? Which, by the way, is not a bad place to leave him. But when you leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. And then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and he says, rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. And so we asked the shepherds this question as we were sitting in the tents and you can kind of get an idea of how they live just by the pictures that I've provided for you. Because what they do is they leave their village and they go up on the top of the mountain in the summer months and they take all of their sheep and everything up there with them. And they build these tents and they live in these tents for the summer months. And at the end of the summer months, they break them down and they go back to their village. And then they go back up and then they go back down. It's kind of their life. And this is some of our team walking into the village, to the first village, to share the gospel with them. And we shared the story of the lost sheep. And we asked this question. We said, have you ever lost, you ever lost a sheep? And they're like, oh, yeah. Well, when the, when the sheep ran off, uh, did the sheep, after a while, look around and go, hey, <laughs> we've got a problem here. I better get back. And they laughed. They're like, no, it doesn't work like that at all. Well, what did you do? And the answer was, well, you know, we had a team that was kind of here, but one of us had to, had to go find that thing. You know, and you never know where these things are gonna be. And that's absolutely true. You never know where these things are gonna be. But we had to just up and off and we had to go find this sheep. And once we found it, you know, we were gonna, we were gonna bring it back in, into the fold. I said, well, you actually understand Jesus better than you think. You understand him better than you think. Because that's all of our story, isn't it? Here's what scripture says. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all gone astray. But he's the shepherd that comes to find us and to save us. That, my friends, is the story of Christmas. And even though it's thousands of years old, it's true. And it's for you. And you know what? It's still for me too. I still need Jesus today. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.